Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Luke chapter 8, we're going to repeat verse 16, so that's where we'll pick up. Uh, quick overview, uh, just as we go through these Gospels, especially Luke writing a history of the church and Jesus, uh, we have this um, Gentile writing about Jesus. Chapters 1 and 2 shows how John is born, how Jesus is born. Chapter 3 is the genealogy, the temptation of Christ, the baptism of Christ, all preparation for the ministry. Chapter 4 are a sequence of stories derailing Jesus from the ministry, which he also resists. He resists the devil, he resists the world, and he resists the flesh. He calls disciples to help him, and, I, and that could also be an image of the flesh, right? He actually tires as a human incarnate. He gets wore out. Um, so he brings people to help him with it in chapter 5. Chapter 6, he teaches the way of Jesus, like this is the way. Christians for a century were called the way. This is a path to live life, a way to live life, a way to do things. Chapter 7, you get all the reactions to Jesus. There's faith, there's anointing, there's glorifying God that's starting to happen. Jesus teaches about the word going out, and there's four responses to it. And we saw this at the beginning of chapter 8. This is the parable of the seeds. When God's word goes out, people respond to it differently. There's the devil, the world, the flesh, and there's good soil. In some ways, we've seen Jesus overcome the devil, the world, the flesh. And in chapter 7, we've seen people react well to him already. You could argue the whole book hinges around chapter 8. And, and the heart that keeps and grows the word is a heart that is good soil. And the, the word of God is the seed that goes out, but the soil is the heart that it lands in and how it responds. So as we've seen Jesus go through these things, and then he tells a parable about it, the rest of chapter 8 is a series of stories that have to do with how the word of God gets revealed with people. He then says, the point of the parables is not to hide it. Verse 16, no one when he's lit a lamp covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand that those who may enter can see the light. Nothing is secret. The parables, the words of Jesus, none of that's secret. It will not, that will not be revealed nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Therefore, take heed how you hear. That's the key differentiator for the seeds in the soil. It's how we hear the word of God. What's going on in our head when the word of God's getting taught? For whoever has, to him more will be given. Whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken from him. How does that play out in life? In real life, what does that look like? If the seed is the word of God, we also know the word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. That imagery Jesus uses from Psalm 119. Second Peter 1, the disciples keep using this. We have a prophetic word confirmed, which we will do well to heed as a light shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So the connection of the word of God being a seed that gets planted in our heart, but also a light that shines to the world. All of the planet needs to hear the word of God. That's the point of it. It's not to hide it. It's not to just hear it on Sunday and hold it to yourself all week. If you're hearing, you're going to hear more of it. That's an interesting concept. The word is going to get louder, deeper, and brighter in your heart the more of it that you hear. 
the more you're going to make connections. When you hear, if you're doing a Bible study in the Old Testament and the New Testament every week, you're going to start to see connections between it. It's a multiplying effect. If you're doing your own Bible study every morning throughout the week, whatever you're studying there is going to connect to what you hear on Sundays. And you're going to start to hear themes through it, almost like it's alive. The more you hear, the louder it's going to get in your life. Our job when we hear the word is to let people see it in our hearts. So when people meet us and we express our heart to them, they should hear what's in our heart. And if the word's in our heart, then people hear it. We don't allow thorns to crowd out the word. This is kind of review still. The thorns are the cares, the riches, and the pleasures of this life. All the good stuff. There's some good things in this life. Good things that can distract people all the way to their graves. But those good things aren't necessarily God things. There are, there are, we don't back down to the world and all of its storms, right? There are bad things in this world that can also take us away from the word of God. So there's the thorns, there's the, the world, or the, the stones, so to speak. Those who believe for a while, but they fall away when things get tough. And then we don't give ground to the devil or demonic activity. For some Christians, it's hard to understand how much the Bible talks about the devil and demonic activity. There are angels, there are demons, they're the same beings that have made a choice to serve and honor God and those that choose to defy God and try to destroy what he's doing. So we don't give ground to that. The devil comes and takes the word of God away. Uh, I think that can come in a lot of forms. I joke about some of the lighter ones, but seriously, you can sit through a sermon and have your brain in some other totally different place and not hear a word of it. You walk out the door and it didn't even take root. Now we get three stories that show all of this in action, and I think this is amazing. Well, we really get five stories. There's three examples of bad, thorns, world, devil, And then there's two examples of good, a rich man and a poor woman. Um, For verse 18, for whoever has, what does he have? What do you get? Um, How do you hear? Do I really have ears to hear? These are stories that show us what it looks like. If you have, you get more. If you don't have, it gets taken. It's a practiced way of life or a routine, and there's a momentum to it both ways. This is something that I think has been more interesting for me personally as I've been more involved in the spiritual lives of people around me is how the momentum towards God gets stronger and stronger and stronger. But in the same sense, there's people that hear God's word, but the momentum away from God just takes them away from it. And you kind of feel sorry for them because they know the right path. So it goes in, it goes both directions. Now look, Luke turns to these stories um, about each of the soil types, I would argue. Um, again, these are these books that Luke's writing, he didn't put chapter divisions in here. The, the church did that later. So when he groups things as tightly as he does here with the three soils and then the three examples, you can bet that he's pairing them. This is part of what Luke is writing, and I'm going to teach it the way I think Luke wrote it. Um, we can, I think, Luke picks, I think, the best possible, or depending on how you look at it, the worst possible scenario for thorns, world, and devil. Like he picks the extreme so that no, no, nothing less than that is, is there. So if you're going to take the, the, our, the things of this world that are thorns, our, our cares, our, um, our energy, our relationships, our time, things that are generally good in the world that draw us away from the work of God, The worst case or the best case scenario possibly is our own families. This is the hardest thing to deal with in the faith is a family that doesn't share your faith with you. 
that you love, you care about. The Bible tells us to care for our mother and father. It tells us to love our children and raise them. So this is something that, that is a care of the world that's actually, it is a good thing to love your family. But here we get this story about Jesus just turning his back on his own family. There's a boundary that he sets with them that keeps the thorns out of his garden. And at this point, later on, Jude and James, they're going to become leaders in the church. They will become believers. So their hearts will change. They're not always thorns. But there is a point where at this point in the life, the ministry of Jesus, the word of God going forth, is about to get interrupted by his own family. Worst case scenario. Right? Then his mother and brothers, verse 19, as we're kind of picking up with the new stuff today. Then his mother and his brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Here he is. He's in the ministry. He's teaching the word. We would think that if anything gets priority in God's life over teaching the word and, and ministering and doing the work of God, sharing that light, it would be his own mom, right? Is there anything else, is there any other thing that could snare him and pull him away from the work that would be more have more influence on him than his own mother? So Mary and Joseph have a number of kids. His dad's not here. At some point, Joseph has died. But they desire to see him. In the middle of his ministry, they're trying to interrupt him. It can't wait till mealtime. It can't wait till tomorrow. It has to happen now, in the middle of the crowd. And they want to pull him away from this. Likely, they're doing this out of concern. They see Jesus going off the rails. He's calling himself God. Like, if my brother started to do that, I might want to try to pull him away from that activity because you're going to get hurt doing this. This is serious business in the first century. John 7, 5, neither did his brethren believe him. They don't believe the word of God. The word of God is not landing on their hearts. They're not hearing it. So when his mother and brothers here are clearly his biological family, Jesus makes a shocking statement that defines the people doing the word of God with him as his spiritual family that takes precedence over the biological family. This is really complex stuff. The emphasis here is on my, he says, my mother and my brothers. He's saying, at least for me, this is my boundary. This is the garden that I'm tending. And this is where I draw that line. He clearly defines his spiritual family in doing that. He isn't going to stop ministering to his spiritual family because his biological family wants his time. And this isn't to say that he doesn't love his mother. Like, I, that's way overstating what's going on here. We know he loves his mother because one of some of his dying words are to give John, to make sure that John's going to take care of his mom. Why didn't he ask James or Jude to take care of his mom? Because he wanted somebody that had taken root with the word of God to be caring for and loving his own mother. So his brother John, his spiritual brother, is the one he asked to care for his mom. But we know he loves his mom. We know he cares for her. We know he's provided for her for years. So those who hear the word in God and do it are the, those that he defines as his spiritual family. So as you're trying to pull Jesus aside, I think the worst case scenario is when your own mom wants you to come and do her thing instead of what you've given to God. And there's a line there that's really tough. At this point, they're not hearing him. Perhaps there's no greater good thing in the world for him, yet they're number two in the world when it comes to doing what God's called him to do. This is extreme for sure. 
And for us as believers, this is a tough thing for us to adapt, to understand. But the work we have for God is simply more important than any biological ties that would call us away from that. And again, I'm just teaching what I think Luke has for us today. Even the best case, even even when our family says they're believers, they can still be a a snare, a thorn uh, to the work that needs to be done. So setting a boundary there and demarking it is not only being faithful to what God's called you to, but it's also a witness to your family. Like if your faith is something you just throw away anytime you need to or it's inconvenient, like what kind of faith do you have? So when you're trying to talk to your unbelieving family, calling them into something, but that something has no worth in your life, it has no boundary around it, it's not sacred and it's not holy, there's nothing compelling about it. So to say to a family once in a while, you know what, this is what God's called me to do, this is what I've set aside for God, I'm going to do this, so I need to miss that. That one moment says so much to your family. It is a witness to them, but it's not necessarily one they're going to want to hear. Does that make some sense? Right? And, I, and I'm speaking from experience on this. I'm also speaking from the experience of seeing a family come around to God and respect for God because of their respect for myself and my wife and my family. When we set the boundaries, it adds value to the things of God and it puts other things humbly into the place where they should be, secondary to God. So this can be abused because you can have people that get religious or legalistic about this, that you, you never skip the things of God. But it is interesting when we set and demark territory for God, how quickly the thorns will try to creep into that garden. And you determine an area that you want to keep weed free, you put a fence around it, and you keep the weeds out of it. So Jesus models how to handle the cares, riches, and pleasures. I think this is a care. He cares for his mom and his brothers. And he says, I choose the kingdom first. Next story. You got the winds and waves obeying Jesus. This is verse 13. They believe for a while, but when temptation comes, they fall away. And who better, what more extreme example can we get than the 12 disciples that have been working closest to Jesus, right? They believe with all fervency. They're as as good a believer as you can get, but as soon as they get into a situation where the world says you're about done, they just, their faith just withers away. So again, an extreme example. And these are, (coughs) excuse me, um, When we did this story in Matthew and in Mark, like honestly, the way Luke sets it up, I feel like these stories have a totally different texture to them in how they're shaped right next to these seeds parables. The disciples then are a great example of those who have faith. But then in verse 22, read this. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. They receive the word with joy. They're on board. They're let, they get in the boat. They're going where he's going. But the command, the word of God here is that they're going to cross over to the other side. That's what Jesus said out of his mouth. The very word of God is that they're going to cross over. So Jesus didn't say, let's go out onto the ocean so we can die. He didn't say, let's go out and drown together and have a great flavorful end. He said, let's cross. So to to doubt that they're going to cross is to doubt the word of Jesus, meaning they didn't hear what the word of God was. So as they sailed, he fell asleep. (laughs) I like that Jesus just takes a nap. It shows him in all his humanity, yes. And a a windstorm came down on the lake, 
and they were filling with water and they were in jeopardy and they came to him and they awoke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. He said they were going to cross the lake. They're saying they're going to perish. It's the faith in the word of God just isn't there. Their initial willingness with hit with a danger from the world withers away. Obedience turns into worry. To say we're perishing is to mean that God's word meant nothing. They were veteran fishermen, so everything in the world said they were going to perish. The only thing to contradict that is the word of God. A lot like when everything in the culture says to think this or do this, and the only thing contradicting that is the word of God. Which one are you going to stand on? This is a, again, we pointed this out in Matthew. These are professional fishermen. They know when to be scared on a boat. They, everything rational says, yeah, this is, a, this is it. They're going to die out here. The only reason they have to not be scared is the word of God itself. That's it. So the, to say they're perishing, they think Jesus' work is about to end. This was the whole ministry. The Messiah himself is going to die in Galilee, and this is, the world is going to end along with him. So the storm is like the seed on a rock. The rock is just, they see the storm as unwielding and unmovable. There's no other outcome that can happen here other than that they're going to die. But they forget about the other rock, which is Jesus, the rock of our salvation. Interesting that the same image of a rock is used, the rock of the world and the rock of salvation. There's not a storm, not a culture, not a mandate that Jesus is not greater than. And I, and I think as we get closer to Jesus' return, we're going to see more and more of the world being the conflict to our faith. Not the thorns of the flesh, not the good things of life, you know, taking the sun away from the good things of the kingdom of God. It's going to be the world itself putting more and more pressure on believers. You have to do it this way. Here's how Jesus responds. He then, then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, where is your faith? He brings it right back to this issue of faith, just like with the seeds. How'd you fall away so quickly? Verse 13, where's your perspective? Is it on the storm? Or is, is, is it, it only took you a storm to doubt my word? That's it? So he arose and he rebuked it. He models how to handle the world. He's, he doesn't just rise and stand up to it. He also rises and rebukes it and says, I want nothing to do with that. And again, this is like tending your own garden. The storm does not get in the way of Jesus' momentum. And because he's in the word, because he is the word, the word of God trumps the storm. Makes no sense in the flesh. Again, it's a rock that's hard for us as humans to see around. But the storm ceases. Matthew and Mark and Luke all tell this story in such a way that the ceasing was almost supernatural. It stopped very quickly. It ceased and there was a calm. Like, it was so much more powerful that the rock didn't only have to move for the word, it got blown out of the environment in, on the sake of Jesus' word. At a word, Jesus ended the whole thing. Any force that comes against Jesus can be rebuked. And we as believers need to know that. As part of the child, children of God, as the family of God, we have the power to rebuke the world. And not be like the dude on the corner dressed in weird clothes and stuff, just rebuking people out of our own hatred. But when things get come against the progression of the word of God, we have a right to say, I rebuke you, knock it off, get out of the way. And when it happens and when you have those moments, it's kind of amazing how quickly things will back off that are trying to stop the teaching of the word, stop the progression of the word of God. And I think 
appropriately reading this passage, we need to understand Jesus' word was to cross that sea and the sea was trying to stop it. Supernatural. Epic. I don't want to proclaim the name of Jesus because people might get upset. My culture might not like it. What a horrible thought. It's just a withering seed. They might shut our church down. They might stop us from doing it. No, they can't stop the word of God. They don't have that power. You know, they only have that power if your fear rises to it. Look at the world. Look at how hostile it is to Christians. Look at the news. Look at, go to, go to like prophecy conferences and be worried and be anxious. Or just recognize that at a word, Jesus can end all of this and return tomorrow. Like nothing's going to be so much that it stops the progression of the world, world in that sense. No, no bank account can save you. No system can save you. No political candidate can save you. Jesus saves you. He's the only rock that we build our foundation on. Everything else gets in the way. It's stormy out there. Let's admit that, right? There are storms out there. And everything in our human sight says, oh, they're really bad. They're coming against us. And it's so easy, like the 12 disciples, to be people of faith following Jesus and then get caught in the storm. And we forget that just because Jesus is waiting so that no one perishes doesn't mean he can't rise up and speak in a moment. Let's let him sleep in the boat as long as he wants to and just be disciples of faith. Let the storms beat against our boat and as long as we're still breathing, it's not over. So we just keep going. Even if the water can get up to our necks, let it come. We don't worry because we faithfully persist in our calling. Jesus' question, where is your faith? What a hard question to ask ourselves, isn't it? Where's your faith? You put it in the world, what the world says you need to put your trust in? Or do you honestly put it in him? Where are those roots at? How deep are they growing? What's the storm that would be tempting you to despair or to worry? If you're afraid... You're not trusting the Lord. They're opposites. Oh, and they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. I think with Matthew, he was trying to show Jesus' power over all the elements of, of the kingdom, right? But in Luke, I think he's trying to show us something about faith in connection to these seeds. Look at this. We can note God's power and the world can try to drown out Jesus, but it simply can't, and the boat won't sink. Like, think how many times they've tried to shut down the church. It just doesn't work. Go for it, right? One of the fastest-growing Christian communities in the world right now are in the most oppressive governments that the world can offer. The Chinese, man, they rock. I've met them. They are people of faith and joy and peace, and they just hang out in their houses and study God's word together. Frankly, they memorize God's word together. It's crazy, because they're like, the more we memorize it, the more we benefit from it. Jesus is so far superior to anything. He doesn't get us out of every trial. Sometimes he gets us through the trial. Now we deal with the devil. Next story. You see how this kind of plays out? The next, he takes the next most extreme example of devil activity, actual full-on possession, right? And how many people ever have encountered somebody they feel like was demon-possessed? So we're all within that zone, right? So this is the worst it gets when it comes to demon possession. And I want to say that because of how quick Jesus takes care of it. 
This is so small from a heavenly perspective. But from our perspective, we think demons. And I just keep thinking of movies I shouldn't have been watching when I was a kid. You know, Hollywood makes demons way more powerful than they really are. But the Bible just doesn't present them as that powerful. It presents them as little weasels that need to get the heck out of the way. And that's how we look at this as believers. Verse 12, the devil comes and takes, right? Verse 26, then they sailed to the country of Gedarenes, which is the opposite of Galilee. This is a Gentile kind of community. Jesus is expanding the ministry. The word's going to go forth in a bigger area, going into new territory. Luke hasn't brought up this extent of the ministry yet. So one thing I think we can learn from verse 26 is, demonic resistance tends to come when you go into territory where the word hasn't been taught before. So we see a lot more demonic activity with missionaries and with people going into brand new territory. Frankly, in America, as we are becoming kind of a post-Christian society, demonic activity is on the rise. Look at the statistics. It's crazy. I was going to go through them all, but I didn't want to like elevate demonic activity more than I should with this teaching. But it's on the rise. Along with the demonic activity on the rise goes a rise in um, suicide rates, goes a rise in self-harm, goes a rise in gender confusion. All of this stuff is what demons do. They destroy the human that they're going after because that human's an image of God. And if they can destroy that, they're insulting God and they're, and they're, and they're breaking God's heart. They love it. So he meets this kind of resistance. This is a devil that wants to snatch away the word, word from going into this well-trampled Gentile town, right? They're beat down, they're hard-hearted, and, and this devil wants to stop him right at the shore. Verse 27, when he stepped out onto the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. Well-worn ground, a wayward, a, a side path. And there were no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him. And with a loud voice, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Again, he sounds like a weasel. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Wait, Jesus had commanded? Past tense? He said to come out and then the demon argues with him? Wow. For it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, for he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. There's so much here. First of all, we get probably our most detailed glimpse of demonic activity. Um, not, not natural strength, not natural loudness of voice. That loud voice in verse 28 was a different kind of voice coming out of the guy. Um, living in the tombs, like he's happy to do harm and, and expose the physical body to the elements, um, to hurt the body that it's residing in. The fact that he's there for a long time, I think, is an indication that he's beaten down. He's a path that's been well trodden on. There's no life in the guy. He's already like the living dead. There's no joy in him. There's just a submission to dread that has happened in this guy's heart. At some point over this long time, this guy has welcomed the demonic presence. He's, he hasn't done anything to kick it out, and he definitely hasn't appealed to God. So he cries out. He falls down. He's unable to hear the word of God because he's too busy yelling. You ever, I think this is one of, this is a worst case scenario, but a not so worst case scenario is when somebody with a demonic issue comes into a church, it tends to be that they dominate the room, not the word of God. 
and we've seen this in our Bible study, you guys, where what comes into the room is not loving, it's not caring, it's not in the spirit of Christ, it's not the humility of a broken spirit, it's this pride of making a scene, the falling down, physical activity that draws attention, crying out, verbal activity that draws attention. The word of God can't land on this heart because this heart's being absolutely overwhelmed with demonic voice. The, the devil is trying to snatch away God's word from getting taught. And this is before Jesus even starts teaching, right? Interruptions. The demon's loud and demonstrative and dominating the conversation very quickly. Like there's no patience with this demon. Jesus, son of the most high God. That title's true, but he's not saying it with a voice of humility. There's not a concern here that Jesus hasn't used that title yet. The title Jesus has used so far in the Gospel of Luke has been son of man. He's not respecting the language that Jesus is using. So he's not using the words of God to refer to God. So what he's saying is true, but it's definitely not tactful. It's not sincere, and it's not an indication of faith. I hope you guys can see that when you read it. There's nothing about this demonically possessed entity that's helping the sharing of the word of God. He uses this full name. In this period of history, we've talked about this before, there was this superstitious belief that in spiritual issues, if you knew the name of the demon, if you knew someone's name, you had power over them. So using this name of Jesus could be perceived as an attack as he uses a full title against him. Knowing that there are right things to say doesn't mean that they're the right thing to say. And in this case, the demon's using this indefinitely. The, the request is, of course, do not torment. This is an interesting thing that evil does if we're looking at the nature of evil. Who's doing the tormenting in this situation? Who's the tormented one? So it's interesting that this human that's been overrun by demons is accusing Jesus of doing the tormenting when that's actually what the enemy does. It's called gaslighting, to accuse somebody else of something that you're actually doing. And it's a demonic pattern and it's a demonic habit that actually happens when you start doing something and then accusing other people of doing it. At the very least, it's hypocrisy. At the worst, it's demonic activity. When the, devil, when the devil starts to do those sorts of things, they accuse people of the planks in their own eyes. Um, in verse 29, it says, for he had commanded. They're also arguing with and bickering with what the word of God actually says. We talk about this all the time. I'll teach the word based on what it says. You might not always like what it says, but I'm going to just teach it as we read it, or at least as I read it, and then we talk about it afterwards. That's why we have conversations about it. Let's understand what it says first, but this demon's not doing that. He hasn't even heard one word out of Jesus' mouth except for get out of him, and then he bickers with that word. So evil loves to argue a point. They love half-truths. They love insincere concern. They love using false titles. They love being loud. They love drawing attention, and they love snatching away the seeds. The words there that, that often seized him is very similar to the word where they're taking away the seeds from the road. Luke's using parallel language here. The demonic possession often comes with this idea of I can't control statements. It's out of my power statements. Demonic activity often comes with that kind of language. So this guy being seized by evil is confusing the flesh with demons that are trying to destroy him. And it's so subtle here that we don't even see the, the character of this person coming out in this interaction. It's the most extreme example. But the fact that demonic 
possession often likes to remove the agency and freedom of control from the human that it's tormenting is common. And we need to just understand that about this, that these people will often be tortured. They will say and do things that they regret instantly. And they'll just be like, I can't even control myself. I don't even know what I'm doing. And there's a demonic activity there that we as believers can pray against and we can rebuke it and we can command it to be gone. But that person has to not be working in concert with it, right? So if somebody's willing to be beat up, if they think they deserve it, Satan has really won with that person. So giving them hope, giving them words of hope, giving them love they don't understand, responding to hatred with peace, there's, got, there's a human that's got agency here too. And that second that human wants the demon gone and the word of God says, get out of them, it's over. And I think what's happening in this interaction is the demon's responding, but the heart of the human is like, yeah, I'd like to be done with this torment. Save me. And that's what we see in the next verses. I think, and let me say this too. Some wings of the church claim the Holy Spirit makes them lose control too. I just couldn't control myself in the Holy Spirit. Nonsense. Nowhere in the Bible does the Holy Spirit take away your agency and your control. Our spiritual self has to be in agreement with the Holy Spirit before we move in the Holy Spirit. Right? The Bible never removes your free will from your action. So when people say, I'm doing this thing that's a distraction, but I can't help myself because it's the Holy Spirit, that's nonsense. So he broke the bonds and he was driven. The devil drives and, and constrains people. He puts bondage on. When people say, I can't control myself, that is often demonic. It is not the Holy Spirit. So whenever it comes to God's chains, the only chains we have are the ones we voluntarily take up. We put our ear to the doorpost. We join the family. We serve the king, but we're never compelled to do those things. We do it under free will. So the other place that the demon drives this person, just getting nature of demonic stuff, he drives him into the wilderness. The phrase there is, the wilderness there is a physical location, but the place Jesus has landed the boat is not wilderness, it's the shoreline of this city. So the fact that he drives them into the wilderness could be an image of loneliness, isolation. Being bound by evil often feels like you're all alone. It's one of the great lies of Satan. Nobody understands you but you. You're the only one that can understand your situation. You're all alone. You're all by yourself. This is what Elijah said to God. He's like, I'm the only one. And God's like, no, there's thousands of other people like you. Get over yourself. You're not that special. But the devil loves to make people think that they're that special but not in a holy or a good way. They're special in the sense that they're all alone, they're helpless, they're all by themselves. Nobody can help them. Faith then is not believing about Jesus alone, but it is loving Jesus because in loving Jesus, you have now one other entity with you in your life besides you. You're never alone. That's the message of God. You're never by yourself. There's no wilderness that doesn't have a river Jordan in it. Right? There's no place you can run that you can hide from God. There's no cave you can be in where he's not with you. That's the message of God. And when we stop believing that, we open ourselves up to the demonic lie that we're all by ourselves. 1 John 5.1, whoever believes that Jesus Christ is born of God and everyone who loves him and who begot also loves him, who is begotten of him. Everybody who believes in Jesus has Jesus with him and your family. 
here's a sidetrack. We can ignore this reality too much and not hear the word of God. In that case, we're deceived. Or we can overemphasize this reality and worry and fear about demons too much, and then we're intimidated. Like, there's a narrow way between these two things. We can be deceived or we can be intimidated, or we can walk with the confidence of Jesus Christ that he is greater than he who is in the world. Period. The balance is the Christian knows that Jesus has the authority to bind him, and he's given us the authority of him to do that. So now we get Jesus' response to this demon. Here's how he handles the devil. Again, he's modeling for us how to handle the, de- the bird trying to take the word of God away. Jesus asked him, saying, what's your name? <laughs> Just, let's have a conversation. You know, not intimidating, not anything like that. And he said, legion, because I have many demons, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out of the abyss. Do note that legion is not an individual's name. He doesn't answer the question. He's not truthful. So Jesus adds him a simple, basic question, and he gets a dance around answer. You, You ever see that in the world today? Politics? Ever see people do that? Simple, direct question, dancing, political, spin move all around. That's, that's an indicator of not always the case. Sometimes it's just humans being weasels. But this is definitely something that demons do. Indirect, unanswering. Verse 32. Now a herd of as many swine were feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him that he would permit them to enter, and he permitted them. And the demons went out of the man, entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. Does the dead pig land into the abyss? <laughs> I just, this is crazy. First of all, a legion in the Latin is 5,500 5, soldiers. Um, it's a military unit. The demon uses a Latin word here, which means demons know languages. Um, the abyss, the demons also use the, a Greek word here, which means a bottomless, deep pit. Revelation 9 calls the abyss the place where the demons are going to go. So it's entirely consistent with John's prophetic word is what Luke is recording here. They would rather torment these pigs than be idle. Anything other than being idle, the devil doesn't sleep, the devil doesn't die in the kind of way that we do, and the devil is always about snatching seeds. And maybe if he can kill these pigs, he can get the whole town to turn against Jesus. Jesus permits them. He allows his disciples to see this. One question is, why would Jesus allow these? Why wouldn't he just send them to the abyss? Right? Why would, why would he let them kill all these pigs? First of all, pigs aren't kosher, but I don't think that's the reason why this happens. I think he wants, he's modeling something for his disciples here. I think he wants his disciples to see how destructive demons are. They start out as appealing we, people welcome them. You know, one of the fastest growing games in the toy industry right now is Ouija boards. That's sick, you guys. That's in a generation of kids just welcoming demonic conversation. They start out as appealing, alluring, edgy, you know, seances, nonsense like that. But their true desire is to do what they did to these pigs. And I think Jesus is trying to show them this is what they really do. This is their real goal. So he wants that they want to destroy more than anything else. They want jealousy, hatred, envy. You guys, they want drama. They want people hating each other. And that's the demonic, Satan loves our eyes to be on him and hating each other, not on Jesus. He wants our eyes on the pigs, not on the Jesus that's standing right there. 
anything to distract from the word of God, any kind of destruction, display, interruption that ends with that kind of chaos is the devil. It's what he does. And we're told that in the word of God. We're shown what it looks like. Note, verse 34, when those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. When they run to the city, are they saying what the Samaritan woman said when she ran to the city? When they run into the city, are they saying what the shepherds said when they ran into the city? When they run into the city, are they saying what the leper, the healed leper said when he ran into the priests and told the whole city? They're saying the exact opposite. The devil's done exactly what he thought he was going to do, but God has another plan here. They're not telling the word of God when they run into the city. They're actually speaking against God when they run into the city. So then they went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. First of all, the man has been healed. Jesus made this whole trip for this one guy. And he's doing exactly what Mary did. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, worshiping the Lord God Almighty, not with big, loud voices. He's not screaming out Jesus' name. He's not a distraction. He's put clothes on. To be quite frank, when we come to church, we should wear clothes, right? He's not trying to be a scene or make a scene of himself. He's just sitting there. He's in his right mind, listening to what Jesus has to say, hearing the word of God. And they were afraid. <laughs> uh, yeah, what kind of town would rather have this guy being tortured in the tombs than in his right mind at the feet of Jesus? Who are these people? How hard are their hearts? Verse 36, they also who had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. They're just scared to encounter Jesus. And you guys, we have tons of people in our country right now. They're just scared to even talk about Jesus because they don't know what they're going to find. And that's demonic pressure. That's demonic forces. Regardless of who the actual enemy is, they don't even want to hear the good news because they're so terrified at, at what just happened. So Jesus walks away. This is, I think, the most terrifying part. Jesus just says, okay. But I think he has another plan. Verse 38. Now the man from whom the demons had departed... By the way, that's a great name to go down in history with. I'm the guy from whom the demons departed. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be his name badge when we get to heaven. You know, so we recognize who this guy is. Begged him that he might be with him. Can I just stay with you, Jesus? I'm safe with you. But Jesus sent him away. Some people he's called close. Some people he's sent on a mission. This guy's ready for the mission. Isn't that amazing? His disciples need three years of training before they go out on the mission. This guy needs three minutes, right? This is a huge, like, think about how fast this guy's grown up in the faith. This guy has everything he needs to do the work of Jesus within minutes. Why? Because he knows what evil looks like. He knows what oppression feels like. He knows what it looks like, and he'll have none of it. Now that he's free from it, he's going to never go back to it. Much different with believers that come into the faith, but they still dabble with evil. Like this, there's no dabbling with this guy. Can I just stay with you? But Jesus sent him away saying, verse 39, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus has done for him. The word of God goes out with multiple multiplication, right? So they don't want Jesus in their city, but Jesus just sends a Jesus follower into their city. 
And he does everything Jesus was going to do because he's an ambassador of Jesus Christ. I love this story. It means anybody can turn from evil and serve Jesus Christ. It gives us a new perspective. A lot of times you hear the parable of the seeds and you're like, well, that's just how people are. But this is a demon-snatched person that God has gone in, tore the demon out, and made good soil out of this person. Anybody can turn and be good soil. The family members that were thorns, Jude and James become heads of the church, good soil. The storms have the disciples losing their faith. All of those disciples, except for Judas, become good soil. In all three of these stories where the soil's not in good shape, God fixes the soil. In all three of them, including the demon-possessed guy, he becomes the first actual evangelist of the gospel in the, in the gospel of Luke. If you don't count John the Baptist, this guy's out teaching a whole town about it. This is amazing. There'll be the 12 disciples and the guy from whom demons departed. Like, he's on the team. Return to your own house. A lot of times when God calls people, the first place he calls us to is our own house, our own family, our own, the people we care about. They need to put their faith in God and not in themselves, not in the world, not in demons. And so he calls, tells them to go back home. I'm guessing this guy grew up in a house that was not so healthy as he was demon-possessed by multiple demons, right? He didn't come out of that house very healthy. But going back to it is where he's told, they're going to recognize the change in him because they recognized what they raised. And tell them, when we're freed from these influences, thorns, the world, the devil, we can actually tell people about God and they recognize in our lives that we're different. Tell them what great things God has done for you. That happens to be the word of God saying, go proclaim what God has done, which is the word of God. A direct command to evangelize with a method to evangelize. We don't have to tell people some argument. We have to just tell them what God's done in our life. Isn't that easy? I remember thinking I had to learn how to evangelize. You don't have to learn anything. You just have to tell people what God's doing in your heart. Here's what's going on in my life. Here's, you just have to be honest with people. It's easy and natural. So he proclaims it throughout the city of what Jesus has done. That means they've led him back into the city. They don't rechain him. They don't send him back out to the tombs because he's not, he's not demon-possessed anymore. The trampled heart, the hard wayside, the bird snatching, all of it's a show that goes away instantly when God says, get out and let this guy be. When God turns the soil, it's good soil. So the family brings cares of the flesh, verse 19. The weather brings the concerns of the world, verse 22. A demon brings torment and distractions of the devil, verse 26. None of these stop the kingdom of God from going forward. Jesus handles all three. Now the good stuff. We, now we get to good soil, right? Here's the word of God going forth, and it lands on two people in a really unique way. All of the elements get mixed together in this next story. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus. I think that's the minute. There's a, probably a proper pronunciation for that, but I'm just going to say Jairus. And he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, just like the healed, demonic-possessed guy. Falls at his feet and begs him for something. He says, come to my house. For he had an only daughter of about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Jairus is a key figure in Capernaum. He's the head or the ruler of the synagogue. Uh, this is Jesus' home base. Jesus and Jairus knew each other. 
No way that they didn't know each other. Jesus has been teaching in this synagogue. This is like if somebody came and took my place as a teacher, I would probably know that person. So it is, it's implausible that these two don't know each other. That means Jairus is not one of the Pharisees that's gone after Jesus, or at least he's changed his mind. So here's a guy who's in the religious elite that actually has heard the words of Jesus and believes that Jesus can heal his daughter. That's good soil. He's heard the word of God and it's taken root. And now he's come to Jesus asking for something. Um, when he's pressed, he's public, publicly professing Jesus has more authority over this situation than he does. He's humbled his position and status. He has money, riches, cares, responsibilities, all the possible thorns. Worst case scenario, rich guy, harder for him to get into the eye of a Hardy for him to get into heaven than, than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. He's got everything against him, yet he falls at Jesus' feet and professes Jesus as Lord. Isn't that cool? Every, all the stuff. Being rich doesn't stop him from coming to Jesus because he's got good soil. Being a ruler doesn't stop him from coming to Jesus because he's got good soil. The dying torment of his daughter, the word torment in there, doesn't stop him from hearing and coming to Jesus because he's got good soil. The multitudes thronging around Jesus, the thorns trying to crowd Jesus out, they don't stop him from getting to Jesus because he's got good soil. His position doesn't stop him. He falls down at the feet. He begs in humility. Here's another good soiler. But as he went, Jesus was actually going to his house. Remember the centurion in chapter 7? Jesus doesn't have to go to his house. We, Luke has taught us that. The fact that he's heading towards Jairus' house... This is a whole town event. The head of the religious town and Jesus, the prophet that's, that's healing people, one of the top ministers in this town, they're walking together down the road together. There's an alliance between the church and the Jesus that's happening at this moment. This is a big deal. The thronging there, and I thought this is what blew me, this is what connected the whole chapter for me. The thronging of the crowd in the Greek, the word there is to choke out. If you go to eight, chapter 8, verse 14, it's the exact same word. It's all tied together. The thronging of the crowd and the thronging of the thorns and the weeds, it's the same word. Luke's absolutely connecting these stories for us. He's using a, a verbal repetition that when you read this chapter as a whole, you would get this. Jesus has a direction towards the house. He has a mission to heal the daughter. And the mobs need him and slow the progress of Jesus towards the goal. You ever hear of pastors that get burnt out? Evangelists and missionaries that get tired? There's just too much work to do and not enough help. And they get beat up. But in doing so, that hinders the word from going forward. They're getting choked out. We get a total opposite of Jairus that also has good soil. Verse 43, now a woman. So instead of a man, we got a woman. Having a flow of blood for 12 years. Instead of healthy, she's hurting. And note that the, the 12 years of blood flow matches the 12 years of an awesome daughter. Right? There's a parallel between these stories that we shouldn't miss. Who had spent all her livelihood on physicians. She's broke. Jairus is rich, and he could not be healed by any. Came from behind. So Jesus walking with Jairus towards his health. She's chasing behind Jesus, coming from the back, and she touches the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. 
Her status is low, unlike Jairus, who is high, because she, and, and that doesn't stop her from coming to Jesus. She's got good soil. Luke's giving us extreme examples on either side of the social system. Her poverty and her brokenness, she's not rich. That doesn't stop her from coming to Jesus because she's got good soil. 12 years of torment, uncleanness, being beaten down, kicked out of town, excluded from social things, that doesn't stop her from getting to Jesus because she's got good soil. The world has told her she can't be healed. She's done nothing in this world to deserve what she's got. She's just oppressed. That doesn't stop her from going to Jesus. Her storm of being cursed, it doesn't stop her from going to Jesus. Both have their hearts entangled by something, but neither are stopped from turning to Jesus. And that's good news. There's no extreme of human life where we can't turn to Jesus and look for help. I wouldn't want to be in her position, and I can't imagine being in his position. The divining thing for both is when they hear Jesus, they believe him, and they turn to him and they beg him for help. She's so humble, she doesn't even want to beg him. She just thinks, maybe if I touch the robe. So she superstitiously touches a piece of clothing because all these physicians have ripped her off. I think it's kind of funny that Luke is one of these, like he is a physician, maybe not her physician, but he is happy to take a shot at his own profession, you know? And many people go to places that they think will help them and all they want to do is take your money and leave you unhealed. And I'm not saying doctors are bad, um, but I am saying there's lots of things in this world happy to take your money and leave you unhealed, right? I will say that most of psychology falls into that category, right? If you don't have the Bible at the middle of your healing process, uh, it's probably not real healing. So she touches him. The border is the fringe around the robe that rabbis would wear. We know from the Old Testament that the, the, the temple priests would have bells, uh, interspersed with little uh, um, tassels um, that were supposed to be like pomegranates, right? So they would go forth with this beautiful little tinkling sound, and in the middle there was fruit all around here, the fruit and the, the volume. They were an image of what priests were supposed to bear to the community, the word of God being heard via the bells and bearing fruit like the pomegranates. This is why the priests wore tassels. This is why some people in our fellowship wanted to bring back the fashion trend of wearing tassels too. But it's an image of the word of God going forth, which was the duty of priests. Verse 5, And Jesus said, Who touched me? And when all denied it, Peter and those who were with him said, Master, like the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? Like, you're nuts, dude. Everybody's touching you. But this is different. Jesus wants to stop and show them something, just like he did, I think, with the demon-possessed person. He wants to show them what good soil looks like. He just taught about it. She thinks incorrectly that the garment had power. Jesus corrects by saying, who touched me? He doesn't say, who touched my garment? He says, who touched me? The difference here is between being close to Jesus and actually being touched by Jesus. And being in the crowd of believers isn't enough you can be with a ton of people touching Jesus, but you're not. And so there's this kind of thing here that we have to reach out for Jesus despite the fact that we're hanging out with Jesus' people. Coming to church alone doesn't get you there. You have to reach out despite everything around it. But Jesus said, somebody touched me for I perceive power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, like people just keep stepping back. And there she is, you know, not stepping back. She came trembling and falling down before him. 
just like Jairus did, just like the demon-possessed man when he was healed. This is good soil. And she declared him in the presence of all the people the reason she'd touched him and how she was healed immediately, just like the demon-possessed guy. The declaration making clear what God did. And she didn't make Jesus unclean. That was the superstition. He made her clean. That's the power of God. It goes that direction. And he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. That's the word of God. That's Jesus speaking. And she isn't going to argue with him and say, oh, his robe healed me. No, I didn't really touch him. But he healed me. I believed in Jesus and I'm healed. That's it. She reached out to believe and God moved. Notice he uses the word daughter. This is the only person Jesus calls by that family name. Remember the story with his family saying, these are my, this, these are my mother and these are my brothers? Well, now he's pointing out who his daughter is. Like his family is people who believe in the faith, not his biological family. It's tied in to the other story. He's, and it's an intimate title. It's family-like. It's blessed. He's taken a woman who's been ostracized by the whole town, and he just called her daughter and brought her close. The reason this gets me is because I've been called son. And you guys have been called sons and daughters of Christ. Sons and daughters of God. What a title. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, your daughter is dead, biological daughter of Jairus. Do not trouble the teacher. You had to think as Jairus hears this that there's the possibility of bitterness welling up in his heart. If Jesus went to stop for this woman, then my daughter would be healed. So he cares more about this person who he's calling a daughter than the person who's actually my daughter. There's a chance for thorns here, that's for sure. Um, Jairus is there waiting. He sees this miracle happen. He could get distracted by this. You'd think he would stomp off and just be like, I'm just, you know, because you would think death, like the storm, is an absolute, that this world says that's an absolute. So I love how before we even hear from Jairus, verse 50, when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, don't be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. The world says she's dead. Everything, that's a rock you don't think you can move, but the Bible says that belief is faulty. People don't die. Our bodies die, but our spirits don't. And so Jesus gives him truth, uh, yet the world wants to say that it's not true. The, the storms of death seem ever-present. But those with ears to hear, hear Jesus saying this. This is the word of God to us, too. Don't be afraid, only believe. Only believe and know that Jesus is in charge. That's two things to hear and do. Jairus trust, trusted Jesus enough to ask. Now that there's this delay, and all Jesus is asking him to do is to hold that belief hold to it. It's all in God's timing. It's all in God's plan. It looks really dark, but it's not. It's part of what God has. So he has a little faith in healing. Now he's asking for a little more faith when it comes to resuscitation. And this is where the entire gospel goes, doesn't it? Isn't this the hope of Christ that we shall not see and taste death like other people? This is where that heads. This is, this is the trusting Jesus on the journey is exactly what we're supposed to get out of this chapter. So far, the combined statements of Jesus, just as we wrap up the... I want to just take the pieces that Jesus has said in this chapter and line them all up. Are you ready for that? 
Hear this as though the word of God is speaking to your heart. Hear this like it lands on your heart with good soil. My mother and brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Where is your faith? What is your name? Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. Who touched me? Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Don't be afraid. Only believe and she will be made well. And what's coming, do not weep. She's not dead. She's only sleeping. Isn't that the gospel? Don't be afraid. What we think is the end is not really the end. Then this is the last element that directs our ears to life and death and the right way to perceive that. We trust Jesus with our lives. We believe the word of Jesus. We hear it. We do it. Even when facing death, that's the worst case scenario. And, the, and we, we look forward. All Jairus has to do here is listen to Jesus. Nothing else is expected of him. That's good soil. There's no ambition with Jairus. Verse 51 starts with when he came to the house. I want to just point out how amazing the faith of Jairus is here. He continues the journey to his house. And he goes right back, even though everybody said your daughter is dead, don't bother the teacher. He's got the whole culture telling him not to bug Jesus about this. Story's over. Your daughter's dead. It's all over with. It's done. Can't be Jesus because look, there's death. There's sickness. There's suffering. So Jesus can't exist in that space. So when he came to the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother of the girl. And now all wept and mourned. Again, notice how he sets boundaries. Nobody else gets to come in on this one. You guys all thought that this was over. You don't get to hear more. To, to whom much is, to whom who hears, much more is given. To whom those who don't hear, it's taken away. And Jesus sets a boundary and says, you don't get to come in. So... He sets a, a distinct barrier between these Peter, James, and John and the father and mother of the girl. Why do those five get to come in? That's a good question. Now, all wept and mourned for her. Remember, they hired professional mourners. So there'd be a lot of noise out in the street, distraction, chaos. But he said, don't weep. She's not dead, but she's sleeping. And then verse 53, they ridiculed him knowing that she was dead. The ridicule of Jesus Christ is usually an indicator of demonic activity. So we've got the world, we've got the thorns, we've got the demonic stuff going on. He permitted these people in the house and those that took the word and had it taking root forever, whoever has to him will be given more. They're going to get to see something amazing here. But all three bad soils are surrounding this house right now. All of them, the whole thing. It's a great story for this parable. But he put them all outside they became brambles that get outside the garden and now all wept and mourned. These people that are weeping and mourning, when it says all of them wept and mourned, implies that perhaps nine of the disciples were also pretty distressed right now, just like they were in the boat. The cares, the press, the crowd, the noise, even though the word of God is don't worry about it, she's just sleeping. They ridicule him. God, again, that's just an evil kind of thing to ridicule what Jesus says. Yet we see the ridicule of the word of God on the rise in our country and in the people around us. Knowing that she was dead. <clears throat> that's interesting. Did they really know she was dead? Did they? They think they know it. But it turns out that what they thought they knew, they were wrong about. I just want to point that out. They knew that she was dead. When you deal with the world, especially... They know things. I'm putting that in bunny ears for people that are listening to this. They think they know things. They know everything. 
but they really don't. At the end of the day, they're kind of wrong. And it's hard to point that out because they know it so much that becomes a rock in their heart that they just simply aren't open to the word of God because they know stuff, right? And then you ask, well, how do you know that? Did you see that in a lab? Have you experienced that? But they know the girl is dead, yet they're not even in the room with the girl, right? So maybe she is just sleeping. Have they seen her for themselves? Have the mom and dad let her into the, them into the room? But they know that she's dead. She's not dead, but sleeping. That's the word of God. Again, this is, there's the word of God versus what the world says. The wisdom of the world permits no hope in the face of death. It's just withering, right? When there's sickness, it's just, there's no hope in sickness. There's no healing. More than ever, we live in an era of ridicule that where people know things and they defy God's word in doing it. And the weeds of the world and the flesh and the devil, they just press in everywhere, sounds really depressing, but then you get the last two, two verses. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called her, saying, Little girl, arise. And then the spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Because Jairus got all the way back to the house with a little seed of belief, and that's all God needed to show Jairus something that was more than Jairus could have ever understood. The miracle was how, <laughs> how this is got kept quiet until Luke started doing interviews. This is to be kept in peace. The woman went to peace in public. It doesn't have any commentary on what the world, all these people who knew she was dead, has no commentary on how they reacted when she's out playing the next day. None. We don't see any evidence of their repenting or saying, oh, I guess I was wrong, right? They'll just shift it again because the problem is the heart, not the evidence. So the woman went in peace publicly. The girl rises from the dead privately. Another contrast between the two stories. I want to point out that he commanded she be given something to eat. All good stories end with food. I just want to point that out. And a feast. Um, this one does too. The command here, however, is a strong word. He commanded that she be given something to eat. There's something more than just give her a sandwich going on here. Right? We're talking about the seeds of the word of God and the word of God, in addition to being compared to a seed and a light, is also compared to bread. It is the food for our soul. It's an interesting command. Feed your family, feed your daughter. Jairus, teach her the word of God. So the command here is, is to give her something to eat could have a lot more meaning than just food. Jairus, you're the head of the synagogue. Now take care of your daughter. And take care of your family. And don't abandon that because you have other duties over here. Be, be tending to it. Again, the whole image of family is those people who hear and believe and do the word of God. Now make your biological family your spiritual family. Take care of that. Connect them. Jesus still hasn't gotten back to his brothers in this whole chapter. But they'll come around. He knows that they're, they're, they're slow learners. Luke shifts after this chapter. The whole book's going to shift next week, and he's going to start taking the disciples into ministry and expansion. That means by the end of this chapter, we know what the message of Jesus Christ was according to the Gospel of Luke. Now we're going to see him teach the disciples. There's going to be some more teaching that goes with it, how to do ministry, how to expand ministry, how to build the church. 
the healing then here is part of not only healing, but then getting fed. John 6, 35, and Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, but he who believes in me shall never thirst. So what's going to happen is these disciples that have had some tough times in this chapter are going to actually start learning what they should do. He's going to turn them into good soil. They're going to bear fruit. That fruit's going to change the world, even up into 2023 when we sit here studying God's word. That's the fruit of what's happening through the rest of the book of Luke. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for what's in there and the way it works in our heart. Lord, if there's thorns, stones, or even um, demonic voices or influences, Lord, I pray that you cast those things out. Lord, help us to pluck the thorns, move the stones, and get rid of any evil that would be influencing how we think about your word and how we take your word in. Lord, help us to eat your word, um, to consume it and to be nourished by it. Help it to stick with us this week. Lord, help us to go to our homes and proclaim the good news. Help us to go back to our cities and proclaim what we've done, what we've seen and heard. And help us to explain to people what God's doing in our hearts. Lord, help us to just be your children in all ways, shapes, and forms. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.